happy day to me. Like, I... Oh, you don't know what I'm talking about. I see. Okay. Well, I'm Patrick, and uh, worldwide they have created a day in my honor. Actually, Patrick DuPaul is also here, so we've got to share the, share the glory. Um, I have, for a long time, felt like this was the one day of the year I don't have to wear green. Because I am Patrick. Like, that is me. That is my identity. But in case some of you are going to try to rush the stage, I've got uh, green socks on. So just watching out for some of you. Uh, so glad that you're here today. The, you know, just looking out at the parking lot. The parking lot's full. You know, the room's full. A lot of you are back from spring break. It's just been, it's just a, it's a good time. Uh, at least that's, that's the way I feel. I hope you feel uh, similar. We're just glad to be back together in the same room. Glad to be kind of uh, t- able to get back on the same page a little bit. Glad that the snow's starting to melt a little bit. Feels good. Uh, those of you that are visiting us from the south, you're like probably thinking you guys are crazy. This is like a deep freeze still going on up here. But I promise you, you will people, see people like picnicking with blankets, you know, out by the frozen lake because they're just so excited that it's 33 degrees, you know. It's above 32. Stuff isn't freezing anymore. Well, uh, this morning, I know we'll just get everything started off right with a little ancient Hebrew poetry, right? Yeah, just, just let's rock some Hebrew poetry this morning. I know, I know that's what everybody's looking forward to. Uh, I want to read this uh, poem uh, and, and it's one that there may be pieces of that you'll be familiar with, but we're going to read it and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some other stuff and then we're going to come back to a few of the things uh, in here. Um, and this is, well, I won't tell you where this is. You can, you can figure it out if you want to later, but we'll talk about that. <clears throat> um, this is kind of the intro to the poem. poem. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Now it gets into the poem proper. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. That was a pretty famous poem. If you are a first century Hebrew person, that was something that you may have known by memory. You you knew it, and, and those words were inspiring. You heard those words. If somebody recited them, you heard those words, and there's something that welled up in you about who you were and your identity before God and who God had called you to be, the type of people God had called you to be. There was something that struck a chord uh, for these people that heard these words. We're kicking off a uh, brand new sermon series this, this week, um, and I am excited about it. I, I'm, I probably should say I'm always excited about anything we're preaching, but I'm really excited about this because I think that what we're going to talk about is one of those things that's sort of a key to just so much in the Bible, so much in our relationship with God. Uh, my wife was visiting uh, my first grader for lunch a couple weeks ago, and she was waiting in line 
um, with, with them, to, you know, to get the, the goop that they put on the train. And um, there's this little boy that comes up and looks up at her and says, hi, I have a guinea pig. And my wife is like, I, she didn't say this, but I don't know who you are. I don't know, you know, anything about your guinea pig. And she's like, oh, that's, you know, it's first grader. They don't have the, we need a little, like, give us a little background here, buddy. And so she's like, well, so who who are you? I'm glad you have a guinea pig. It's wonderful news. Congratulations. And he's like, oh, I'm Doug. Oh, Doug with the guinea pig. That's all we know about Doug. Doug has a guinea pig. And I think a lot of us interact with the scriptures the same way Doug interacts with other people. There's this like one thing about him that he really wants to promote everywhere, but you need a little background information. You need a little context. You need to know like, well, what's your name and what's your guinea pig's name and tell us a little bit about your family. We need to know a little bit more, Doug. I care about your guinea pig, but give us some more to kind of like sink our teeth into so we can develop this relationship. And I think a lot of us have like, I like Jesus and Jesus is cool, but there's something that we need that's a little bit more. And as a church, as a community of believers who are following Jesus, we need to kind of sink our teeth into who Jesus said he was, how Jesus presented himself, the context with which Jesus spoke and taught, everything that he was doing. We need to know that because otherwise we're just kind of wandering around hoping we get it right, hoping we're shooting at the target and that that we get somewhat close. We need a little bit more detail. So we're kicking off this new sermon series to talk about like what what was it that Jesus was all about? What was it that he was doing? And we're going to look at the book of Matthew. And I think the book of Matthew, I, am, uh, I love museums. I love museums for about 30 minutes. But I love them really quickly. And there's two types of museum goers, and you can self-identify here. But I'm a museum goer where I go in and I like, what's the main attraction? What's the cool thing? I'm going to buzz through those pictures because those look like art. I don't understand. What's this thing over here? I'll maybe read the inscriptions if something grabs my attention. But otherwise, I'm just in and out of there like... 29 minutes or less. I'm pretty quick. I'm pretty fast when it comes to museums. Um, others of you are like, you like to take it all in. And every detail and every word. That amen was from my college roommate. You can imagine how that was. You can, you just, just every little piece of information and who drew this and what medium and how did he, and what was he thinking? And I'm like, I don't really care. I just, what's the next? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? The book of Matthew actually encompasses both of those points of view in the book. If you were to sit down and read the book of Matthew, you would get both approaches to Matthew. Matthew's like a museum, but sometimes he's just speeding through the story. Sometimes you just get this information from this high level, and it's just all this intense, like here, boom, 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 one thing after another. So most of the book of Matthew is this sort of high level. It encompasses Jesus' entire story, most of his 33 years on earth is just like really fast. But then later on in the book of Matthew, and this is true for the other gospels as well, he slows things down. And for the last 25% or rather the last third of the book, it's focusing on just one week of Jesus' life. And this is because the author wants you to see with every detail. He doesn't want you to speed through this part of the museum. He wants you to see in vivid, crystal clear detail what's taking place in the last week of Jesus' life, the week leading up to Jesus' death. There's some things that happen after that, but the week leading up uh, to Jesus' death is just this intense, like read every moment, just see every beat, see every inscription uh, that he's talking about. 
So that's what we're going to do for the next six weeks. We're going to look at this last week of Jesus' life where the author asks us to slow down and just take it all in and see what's going on because there's something life-changing, earth-shattering, world-transforming that's going to happen in this week and Matthew doesn't want us to miss a detail. He wants us to see everything. But before we can really dig into that, and I'm excited to dig into it, and I think, I think you will be too as we get into it. Before we can really dig into that, we have to know, like, what was Jesus all about? What was he doing? What was going on? It's that experience where you're coming in on a conversation with two people, and they have some sort of inside joke, or they have some previous conversation that they're continuing from, from a week before, or two weeks before, and you're coming in kind of on the middle of it, and you need a few things to hang your hat on to understand what's going on. Going on. You need to know what is Jesus doing? What was he teaching? What was he about? And I know that feels like a lot to accomplish in just a single Sunday morning, but I think it'll be worth taking a little look at what we're doing. All right? So if you were to, uh, if you were to dip into the story in the book of Matthew and just try to pick out a few things here and there, you would see Matthew teaching some pretty fascinating things, right? You would, some, some things that are pretty well known about who Jesus was. It would be things like, hey, you know, you really should love your neighbor, but then Jesus would go in farther and he'd be like, also, not just your neighbor, your, your enemies as well. You need to love your enemies as well. Uh, you, need to, uh, you need to bless those who, who curse you. You need to be sacrificially generous. You need to give up your life. If you want to be first, you need to be last. And you would, you would see all these amazing truths that Jesus has. And, and so sometimes we view Jesus and we're like, wow, Jesus has all this wonderful advice for how I should live my life. Great advice for how I should live my life. And sometimes that's as far as it gets with people, that Jesus has some good advice for how they should live their life. But it depends on what they're living for or working towards because Jesus' words aren't good advice for how you should live your life just for anybody. Because when he says, like, give sacrificially, that's not something that's going to rocket up the bestseller list in some sort of self-help book. In fact, when he says, love your enemies, when he says, like, I, when he talks about what he's come here to do, they didn't crucify Jesus because he was giving good life advice. Jesus wasn't put to death on the cross because he just had some really nice things to say that would, would benefit your life or help you achieve like some sort of work-life-career balance. That's not what Jesus was about. He was coming in onto the scene, and what he had to say was so incendiary that they eventually killed him for it. And it wasn't just good advice. Does Jesus have good advice? Yes. But was Jesus killed for his good advice? No. Was Jesus killed because he, he posted a blog post about, you know, hey, 15 ways to feel better about yourself? No. That's not why they hung them on a cross. Jesus was about something much bigger. Much more was going on. So Jesus didn't die on the cross because he was giving us good advice so we could achieve some sort of balance in our lives. That's not what it's about. That's not what the story's about. There's a key to the understanding the story that we need to understand here. So to move beyond, and this is important, church. This is important for us, and, you, us, and you, I want you to hear this. To move beyond just treating Jesus as he's giving us, as if he's giving us good advice that we can either take or not take, we have to know what Jesus was all about. 
Because this is the problem with a lot of us Jesus followers. We like him until he starts messing with things that are important to us. And still, until you start, like if you read through the book of Matthew, you get to chapter 5 where he does this thing called the Sermon on the Mount and it starts messing with your actual life and the way you actually have to treat other people. Then we're like, I don't know. This, this, Jesus went from just giving me good advice that I could follow when I wanted to to saying this is how I have to live my life. Why is he telling me how I have to live my life? Who is is he? Who is this Jesus? Just imagine his audience hearing some of these things that he said, and he's teaching his authority, but where does he get this authority? Who is this guy? So I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Matthew, chapter 4. Book of Matthew, chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 12. Book of Matthew, chapter 4. Feel free to follow along, power up your Bible, open your Bible, whatever you need to do. Book of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, you know John, cousin, John the Baptist, he withdrew to Galilee. He kind of got out of the mainstream. He just took himself back out of things. Verse 13, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali. Oh, Zebulon and Naphtali. I feel like I've heard those words somewhere before. Verse 14, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Verse 15, the land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So even Jesus' movements, even where Jesus was geographically, had to do with these ancient Hebrew poems that he believed referred to him and that he was living out. So look what Matthew goes on to say. Verse, uh, verse 16, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Those words sound familiar. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And these people, these first century Hebrew people, you know, they, they, they knew this poem. And they're like, we're living in the land of shadow. We're, we're, we're oppressed. We're oppressed by another nation. Uh, go back one, if you would, for me, Matt. Um, a light is not, oh, sorry, you were right. My bad, you're, you're ahead of me. Verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now this verse, if it's not underlined in your Bible and you like doing that sort of thing, you should underline this verse. Because this is the conversation that we're entering in that most of us don't really relate to. We just don't have a, a, a grasp of what he was doing. And Matthew tells us here, every single gospel writer tells us that Jesus went around preaching this concept called the kingdom. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. He taught it constantly. That's what he was all about. And if you understand Jesus without understanding the concept of the kingdom, you're missing the point. It's like trying to take a class on Martin Luther King Jr. but not ever talking about civil rights. Or, not, or, or trying to learn about Winston Churchill but never talking about World War II. If you try to learn about Jesus, if you try to understand who he was, and you don't understand the thing that he was talking about, and I shouldn't say understand, if you don't begin to at least try to unpack the thing he was talking about, we're going to totally miss the point. We're going to look at Jesus as if he's just got some good life advice that we can take or leave depending on how we feel about it that day. But if Jesus is inaugurating something huge, if he is changing the way people interact with God, if he is talking about introducing a new way to think about our relationship with God, well then we got to tune in here. Talking about the kingdom. This is this ongoing conversation that we're coming into and it's, it's referring back to that ancient poem that we read, the kingdom, the kingdom kingdom. This was his constant message. Now, we're already at a disadvantage, right? Because the kingdom, 
I mean, that's stuff to do with like fairy tales and princesses. I mean, I know that there are kingdoms that, that exist in the world today and there are kings and there are queens, but, but not in the same way that, that we think about this. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and he's like, hey, repent, the kingdom is here, that meant something different than if I were to get up and I were to say, hey, repent, everybody, the kingdom is here. You'd be like, what, what, is, what, what are you talking about? What does that mean? Because they had this idea of what was going on uh, around them. And, and, and I think probably this is the, very, the, the way that we have to understand this. Because it's important that we get into this headspace that a first century Hebrew person hearing the words of Jesus would have been in. And, and it has to do with these expectations versus reality. So what they were dealing with is they were these people who were a proud people, chosen by God, called by God to be priests of the world, given the law, given the law, the truth of God was entrusted to them. They were supposed to be important, they were supposed to be special, but for the last 600 years or so, they had been like overruled, overrun by other nations. And so you can imagine just how that felt to someone who, who felt, who believed they were called by God, but yet they were not their own people. It's, it's, it's as if we just, you know, if, if Canada invaded Minnesota and we're like, I don't, I don't want to be Canadian. I, wanna, you know, I don't want that. I don't want this. And we just didn't have a say over it. Now, some of you would cheer that on, right? Yeah, you're already good to go. I already got my citizenship, right? My citizenship is in Canada. But, but this is this expectation versus reality. And let me give you a couple of examples of, of how, this, how this might have worked. So, First of all, they had this expectation that, that they were under God's authority, that God was their king, so to speak, that God was their ruler, that God was in charge. They had this expectation that they lived under God's authority. But then you just look out your window and you would see Roman soldiers everywhere. Imagine believing that God is the ultimate force in the universe and with with the with the with a breath he can create a world into an existence and you live in occupied territory where people make you do things that you don't want to do and they make you pay taxes that you don't want to pay and they make you carry things you remember that walk one mile walk two mile thing they make you do things that you don't want to do imagine that imagine living with that tension of believing that god was the ultimate authority and yet you had to pay taxes to rome who is this roman guy this caesar guy who is that I don't want to do that. I, don't, I mean, isn't God the ultimate authority? Then if he is, why is our nation overrun by these pagans? That's what they would have felt. That's what they would have imagined. You also believe that, that God was king. You believed that God was in charge, that God was the, the ruler. And then Caesar comes along. And in particular, I just wanted to share this with you because I came across this when I was preparing for this. But this is an inscription. It's found in modern-day Turkey. An inscription about the birthday of Caesar Augustus, who would have been the Caesar when Jesus was born. Listen to this. This is like a Hallmark birthday card. (laughs) Providence has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, sending him as Savior both for us and for our children, that he might end war and bring order to all things. Caesar excelled even our highest expectations. He has surpassed all previous benefactors and not leaving any hope of any future king to surpass what he has done. Today, the birthday of the god Augustus is the beginning of the gospel for our world. That's quite the Hallmark card. (laughs) This is the one right here. The gospel of Augustus. Where have we heard that language before? Jesus didn't introduce that language to the world. That language already existed, and Jesus used it to talk about what he was doing in the world. 
Oh, interesting. So Jesus comes on the scene. We'll talk about that in a second. But you believe that God is the ultimate authority, but yet there's this Caesar who's claiming to be the son of God and claiming to bring salvation to the world. I don't like that. I don't, I don't believe that. That can't be right. God, that can't be right. Why is this happening, God? Have you guys ever done that? Have you ever just opened up a news, uh, read the news, and you're just like, why is the world this way? If God's in charge, why is it this way? This can't be right. This can't be the way things were supposed to be. They, had, they felt that exact same thing. So you got God's authority, you got God's king, you got God's power, right? And then Rome comes along. You know that Jesus wasn't the first person to claim to be the Messiah. Did you know that? There were other guys who were reading the Old Testament and they were like, you know what, this Messiah stuff sounds pretty good. I think that might be about me. Let's gather up a bunch of farmers and get our, sharpen our pitchforks and let's go take on Rome. And you know what Rome did to those guys? Crushed them. Crushed them. And so people felt like, well, well if, God's, if, if God's not powerful and Rome is powerful, what do all these ancient promises mean? What, what do they mean? Can you imagine trying to live in a society that was just steamrolled by the violence of Rome? And then Jesus walks in in verse 17. Jesus walks in onto this scene, this political environment, and he says, hey, all of you repent. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is at hand. Jesus, you can't just say stuff like that. You can't just say that. I don't want a show of hands, but how many of you have ever asked a woman if she's pregnant? You can't just say stuff like that, right? Yeah, that's right. Got to amen something. You, 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 can't just, you can't just go through TSA at the airport and make jokes about bombs. You can't do that, right? Well, we live in a free country and I have a right to free speech. No, you don't. What happens if you start making jokes about bombs at TSA? The empire, the kingdom of TSA will crush you. They will bring you to your knees. You will miss your flight. You will not have any of your belongings. Your checked bag will not make it to your destination. TSA will end you because they have the power in the kingdom of TSA. They have the power. You start talking about God is powerful, God, who's this Rome? What's Rome going to do? They are going to crush you. And they had left a trail, literally they had left a trail of dead messiahs, self-proclaimed messiahs in their wake. Jesus, you can't just walk into the scene and say, hey everybody, just want you to know the kingdom is here. You are saying something, Jesus. These aren't just empty words. Now when we read those, we just speed right through Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. We're just like... Fly right through it, uh, or verse 17 rather, because it doesn't mean the same thing for us. But when Jesus walked into the scene, he's like, hey, everybody, the kingdom is here. And you see this repeated over and over and over and over and over in Scripture. Jesus was making a claim about things were about to change. And there were people in his group that were like, Jesus, oh, you can't say that. Rome's going to destroy you. And there were other people in his group, people like Peter the Zealot, who when they heard that, they were like, yes, let's get our swords. Let's get our bows and arrows. Let's like, take them on. Peter was ready for it. And so you have this mixed reaction to what Jesus was saying. But listen, nobody was neutral. Nobody was like, whatever. People were standing around ready for the train wreck 
or they were ready for the kingdom. That's what was going on in Matthew chapter 4. It's just the way it was. And so when Jesus was speaking into a deep longing and expectation and a desire all the way back to the prophet Isaiah 700 years earlier. So Jesus spoke endlessly. This is all he talked about was the kingdom. And so when we try to understand what Jesus was doing and we just don't think about this concept, conceptually at least, of the kingdom, then we're, we're missing the point of what Jesus, at least what Jesus thought he was doing. All right? And when we remove Jesus from this concept of the kingdom, what we're doing is we're saying, Jesus had a lot of good advice for me how to live my life, and sometimes I'll take it, and sometimes I won't. But Jesus didn't come here to give you good advice. Jesus came here to bring the kingdom. And there's all sorts of implications about what that means for his followers. Either we are participating in the kingdom, or we are not. Let me go even further. Either we believe Jesus is our king or we don't. Either we believe he has the right to tell us what we should do, how we should live our lives, or we don't. But we cannot interact with him any other way because those are not his terms. Either Jesus is king or Jesus is not. And that's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. So, um, we could talk about this. I could, I could show you all kinds of stats and statistics. You know how, how often Jesus talked about uh, love your enemies in the book of Matthew? Any ideas? Once. You know how many times he talked about the kingdom in the book of Matthew? 50 times. 50 times. You know how many pages uh, the book of Matthew covers in, in my Bible? It's about 30 pages. That means every single page has at least one or more references to the kingdom. That's what he was about. That's what he was talking about. That's what he came here to proclaim. That's what he was getting people to repent in order to join, to repent because the kingdom is here. This is what it's all about, folks, and this is why when we're missing this, we're just missing the boat. We're missing the point altogether. I, I think about it a little bit, I don't you know, maybe this isn't a good example, but I think about it a little bit like a newly engaged couple. When you interact with them, well, what are they going to talk about with you? They just got engaged, right? And what words are they? My fiancé. Oh, you mean, you know, Joe over here? No, my fiancé, Joe. Like, they have to add, you know, it's, it's all they talk about. That's all they talk about. Why? Because the wedding is at hand. When Jesus came onto the scene, all he talked about was the kingdom. Why? Because the kingdom was at hand. This is what we need to get drilled down into our spiritual DNA to understand what Jesus said he was all about. All right, so what, what does knowing about the kingdom have to do with, with anything to do with me? All right, so I know about the kingdom, Patrick. That's all theological. I don't need to know that kind of stuff. Oh, man, you couldn't be more wrong. I, uh, most of you know, most of you know, uh, when I was a child, my parents decided to be missionaries over in Taiwan, not Thailand, Taiwan. They're different countries. And uh, while we were over there, if you've ever visited a different country, or Louisiana, I think Louisiana is very much like visiting a different country. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm not just saying that. Uh, it feels like you need a passport to go to Louisiana. Have you guys ever been to Louisiana? It's a very, very different place. If you've ever visited a different country, you have had the experience. Anybody here from Louisiana? No? Good. All right. You've had the experience of like feeling like things are, the rules have changed here somehow. The rules have changed. And the things I can normally expect about how people will interact and how society works and the things that I would normally expect people not to do, they've totally changed. So, so you've all had different experiences like this, but let me give you an example of Taiwan in particular. In the kingdom of America, 
typically, when there is uh, an event that we are attending, or there is a ride uh, at an amusement park that we want to ride, or there is a checkout at the grocery store in the kingdom of America, we just naturally know, it's part of the DNA of the kingdom, that you form a line, right? There is someone who got there ahead of you, that's the way it works, you get there behind them, and that's just the way it works. Now, every once in a while, someone will try to cut in line, or if you're from Minnesota, budge, I can translate for you. Every once in a while, somebody will try to budge in line. Did you guys not know that? It's a really interesting little vernacular. Anyway, and if they do, someone from the kingdom of America will say, oh, no, 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 sir, you need to get to the back of the line here. If they're, you know, for the most part, unless they're from Minnesota, then we're so, you know, like calm and passive aggressive. We don't actually do that. We just get upset and say mean things about them. But generally speaking, generally speaking, someone will set you straight. That's the way it works. If you go over to Taiwan, they don't do lines there. Now, are they being rude? No, not at all. But the rule is, whoever can get to the front next is next. And so we, coming from the kingdom of Minnesota, the kingdom of the United States, we're like taking our place in line and we're ready to go and then all these people are cutting and we try to impose the rules of the kingdom of America while we're in the kingdom of Taiwan and we're like, no, sir, you cannot do that. And they look as like, we're crazy. What are you talking about? I can't do that. You, sir, do not know how things work around here. Now, they don't understand that. They just think we're being weirdo for. That's why Americans don't always have the greatest reputation abroad because we do weird things like try to impose our culture on other nations. It's wild. So we come in to this new place and try to live by our rules in a place that doesn't recognize those rules. And it can get a little tricky. And those people who come over as missionaries have to learn pretty quickly how to navigate this new society and how to live by these new rules so that they can start making friends and evangelize and witness and all that fun stuff, right? So, and this is Taiwan 20 years ago. I don't know, maybe it's different now. So don't, don't like go over there and be like, my preacher told me this is the way it was. I don't know, this is a long time ago. It's the kingdom of wedge yourself in, right? And we look at that and we're like, oh, that's so rude. It's not rude. It's the way things are. You're the weirdo. Jesus came to inaugurate a kingdom, and he expects you to live with the values of that kingdom, the kingdom of God, while you live in the kingdom of this world. And there are going to be so many times where you feel like, I don't understand what's going on. I'm expected to stay in line, and they're all just rushing ahead. Well, you know what? It is going to be tense. There is going to be conflict. Jesus tried to warn his followers over and over. You will have trouble. Why? Because we're trying to live out the values of, of Jesus while we live in the kingdom of this world. It's going to be difficult. There are times where someone, because they took a moral shortcut, will get promoted ahead of you. And that is the way it will be for you as a Christ follower. But you are living the values of the kingdom of God while you live in this world. This kingdom is so different. This kingdom is so cool. It broke all the categories. In this kingdom of God, in this kingdom of heaven, you did not crush your enemies. You loved them. You served them. You had a rival. You prayed for that person. You didn't try to undermine them or diminish them or gossip about them. In this kingdom, you didn't get ahead by using others and getting your way. You got ahead in this kingdom by putting others first. That's how you got ahead in this kingdom. In this kingdom, success was not measured by how much you could hoard away in a bank account or in a garage where you couldn't even park your car inside anymore or the size of your house or any of that. It was measured. Success in this kingdom was measured by how much you could give away. And God expects us to live those ideals 
in a society, in a culture, in a kingdom that doesn't respect that. And we are going to look strange. We are going to look weird. We are going to feel tension and conflict. We are going to do that because that's the way it is. Because we are bringing in a kingdom and there is going to be conflict. We'll talk about that more later because this is important and it trips so many of us disciples up. The kingdom. The kingdom. So, for now, this is what we want to end with. For now, disciples believe, you and I, followers of Jesus, believe that Jesus came to start a kingdom. And there will be expectations that God has of you that are going to put you at odds with the way the kingdom of this world works. Sometimes they'll put you at odds with the expectations of your friends and relatives who do not live in the kingdom of God yet. Sometimes they'll put you at odds with your bosses and your coworkers who do not live in the kingdom of God yet. And that's okay. You still are called to live under the rule and authority of the king and to continue to bring the kingdom into the world. We got a lot more to talk about when we talk about this. And I am so excited because I think that this really transforms the way we live in the world, the way we think of Jesus, and the way that we interact as his followers to really, truly acknowledge Jesus is king, to really, truly believe we live in the kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, uh, I'm grateful that we could all be in this room together, Lord, and I just pray that your spirit would work in our lives. God, there's so much about this that we are trying to figure out, and we want to do our best, but Lord, we pray that your spirit would lead, would guide. Lord, when we come to those points in our lives where we're struggling because it's not clear for us what's the morally correct thing to do, or maybe because it feels like the moral thing to do won't get us where we need to be going, but God, I pray that you'd give us the strength the determination to continue to live as if Jesus is the king, to continue to live as if he brought the kingdom into this world. We love you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.